0: Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razwazan.
1: And I am Mira Nabulsi. On October 2nd, Jamal Khashoggi, Saudi regime insider and self-exiled critic of Mohammed bin Salman, Known as MBS, walked into his country's consulate in Istanbul and never came out. After initial denial and claims that he had left the consulate shortly after arriving, Saudi Arabia admitted that Mr. Khashoggi was dead and it was some rogue elements who committed the murder. Soon after the disappearance of Mr Khashoggi, media outlets close to President Erdogan started leaking out details that Khashoggi had been tortured, dismembered, and disposed by an elite hit squad sent from Saudi Arabia. Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan, himself one of the biggest jailers of dissidents and journalists, promised to name those involved in this heinous crime, but so far has not released any names. In a recent op-ed in the Washington Post, Mr. Erdogan wrote, We know the order to kill Khashoggi came from the highest levels of Saudi government. He added, I have no reason to believe that his murder reflected Saudi Arabia's official policy. But beyond the superficial rhetoric, what has been the impact of Mr. Khashoggi's murder on relations between the two countries. Shahram Agamir puts this question to Sinan Birdal, visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California.
2: What Erdogan tries to express here is basically, you know, he recognizes King Salman as the king, and Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, that's the implication, uh, how I read it anyway, is that the murder can be traced back to Mohammed bin Salman, but not to the king. So I believe this is a uh, attack by Erdogan, the person of Mohammed bin Salman, and sort of tried to sort of get him out of power and, you know, use this opportunity to hurt him. So Saudi-Turkish relations, they started on a good track with the AKP coming to power in 2002, and they were doing pretty well, actually, prior to the 2011-2012 Arab uprisings, maybe even immediately after that, they were collaborating in Syria, supporting a Sunni insurgency in Syria against the regime of Bashar al-Assad. But that alliance seems to have fatally broken after the coup attempt, coup in Egypt in 2013. So basically, what we're seeing here is two axes emerging, one supporting Wahhabism and Salafism through Saudi and Emirati networks. And on the other hand, we have Qatar and Turkey aligning as as a second Sunni axis, which is closer to Ikhvan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood. So in this context, all the other Regional and global actors are taking sides, basically Israel and the U.S. supporting uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis, and Iran and Russia, mainly supportive of Turkey and Qatar.
3: Going back again to the period prior to Khashoggi's killing, it's no secret that both countries have been vying for power in the Middle East and North Africa for nearly a decade, as you mentioned. So what are some of the other issues that have placed these two states at loggerheads?
2: First of all, regional influence, right, especially over, over oil in Syria or in Iraq, over influence over Sunni majority in Syria and the Sunni minority in Iraq. And also, and I think this is a ma- major, so since this is actually the, the award of this, you know, supposed power struggle. So basically, it's, this is what they're trying to sort of achieve, I think, in terms of projecting power, but also the idea that, you know, for the Saudis and Emiratis, of course, the, the idea of an absolutist monarchy is very essential for regime survival. And we see that they don't even let any kind of, you know, constitutionalism or any kind of democratic opening in their countries, except for some, like, you know, ostentatious, you know, makeup reforms about, you know, local elections and, or women being able to drive. But they are very different from the Muslim brotherhood kind of Islamism. I guess it is fair to say right now that we have at least three kinds of Islamism. One is the Shia insurgency, Hezbollah, you know, Iran and Yemen, for example. And then we have a Salafi, Wahhabi Islamism. And then we have the Muslim Brotherhood. In specific countries, in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, Jordan, and so on and so forth, sometimes these two kinds of Sunni Islamism, they collaborate, sometimes they up and I think at this point what we're seeing is that a breakup, a fractalization of Islamic movements, and you know, and this is I think reinforced by initiated by the power struggle between these powers.
3: When Saudis and Emiratis, the United Arab Emirates, severed their ties to mm-hmm. uh, Qatar, Mr. Erdogan's government clearly sided with with Qataris.
2: Mm-hmm. And, There are several arguments explaining this alliance. One of them is basically that Qatar is providing much-needed funds for Erdogan's government, uh, which is increasingly experiencing an economic downturn. Second argument, which I actually tend to subscribe to, is that the crisis in Syria, especially with the Kurds, has led Turkey to find new ways of shifting its policy in Syria in order to go in into that country militarily, which according to international law, only military forces invited by incumbent governments can do. So Russia in that sense is, is covering its operations within Syria under you know international law. That doesn't go for Turkey.
3: Oh, at least um, at, under the pretext of the international under, pre-
2: yes, under the Yes, 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 of course. So they're basically saying Syria is a sovereign country and the Syrian regime invited us over to protect the regime. Turkey's position is not like that. So they were trying to legitimize, justify, or enable a way to get into Syria to fight the Kurds in Syria. And the only way to do that was to reach an agreement with Russia as well as Iran. So since at that point they were already they had no diplomatic connection to the Syrian government. They were already very hostile to the Syrian government. So the only way for them to operate within Syria was to get case from both of these countries. That, however, had required the AKP, to change its alliance policies, its alignments in the larger Middle East. So he had to align Turkey much closely with Iran and Russia. That, of course, disturbed the relations with Israel and also the U.S., because the U.S. administration also went from a reconciliatory diplomatic stance towards Iran to a more aggressive, hawkish stance and this is sort of happening at the same time. So the policy change, I believe, was a, um, I mean, Turkish policy change in that sense was a response to the Kurdish question and, you know, what kind of political powers Turkey needs to crush the Kurdish movement in Syria and Iraq. So I think this is where Qatar comes in. Qatar has always been in good relations with Turkey. Has always been good in good relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, for example, uh, Sheikh Karadawi is still based in Qatar. You know, Al Jazeera is airing Muslim Brotherhood leaders' opinions and you know Muslim Brotherhood preachers. So, in that sense, you know, ideologically they were also closer. Qatar and Turkey, and as Saudi Arabia started an aggressive anti-iran policy pushed qatar to iran's side and at that point turkey had to make a choice between iran and qatar on the one side and saudi arabian emirates on the other side now regardless of the ideological affiliation you know in other words that probably you know the akp and erdogan government feeling closer to the muslim brotherhood than the salafi Wahhabi kind of of Islamism, Uh, nevertheless, there's also, I think, a very geopolitical reason for it. In other words, that Saudi Arabia doesn't have the clout, the political military clout that Iran has in both Iraq and Syria. So in other words, if the Turkish government wants to collaborate with Syria and Iraq, On anti-Kurdish operations, they need Iranian support. So I think in that sense, it was the geopolitical priorities of uh, suppressing the Kurdish movement across Turkish borders that led to uh, the Turkish president siding very, very clearly with the Qataris. What might be the other reaction? The other reaction might be just, you know, the alternative reaction would be just Try to arbitrate between Qatar and Sudis. Didn't they try
3: to do that though?
2: Officially, they tried. So, yes. this is why I think they're still trying. So, the reason why Erdogan seems to be talking in riddles so, in other words, that the order comes from the highest echelons of Saudi political establishment, but we still can exonerate the Saudi state or the Saudi sovereign. That basically means that, you know, we don't have anything against the king or the Saudi state, but we don't agree with MBS's foreign policy. So he's, I think he is actually playing to any kind of potential Saudi opposition that might actually displace MBS from power.
3: It's ironic that the Turkish state, the world's leading jailer of journalists, wants to claim credit for exposing a journalist's killing. Leaving this irony aside, there has been steady drip feed of incriminating leaks through the pro-government Turkish media just to increase pressure on the Saudi regime. And yet, Mr. Erdogan has been reluctant to confirm the details of this killing. He never mentioned MBS by name in his address to the parliament or his opinion piece in Washington Post. Many analysts and diplomats suggest that Mr. Erdogan will eventually use this leverage that he has gained in Mr. Khashoggi's murder to strike a deal with Saudis and the U.S. to make certain that the evidence against the Saudi regime never sees the light of day. That is, Mr. Erdogan will extract concessions in exchange for allowing MBS to save face. What is Mr. Erdogan's game in your opinion?
2: So uh, let's start with an observation and a question. So if the Turkish intelligence has evidence about this murder, one wonders how they have the, all this information, unless they were actually following the Saudi operatives who killed Kashikchi. In other words, the question is, did the Turkish authorities have prior knowledge of this murder? And if they have any incriminating evidence from inside the Saudi embassy, or if they have any evidence about, you know, who's going in, who's going out of the embassy, you know, how do they get this intelligence? And the other question is, if they had the intelligence about this murder, why didn't they stop it? In other words, there is a big question mark about whether or not the Turkish intelligence or the Turkish authorities had prior knowledge of this murder and had been actually consciously following this murder in order to procure evidence for a Saudi murder.
3: That's a fair question. Since
2: we don't know the specifics of the evidence that the Turkish government has, since we're getting this sort of drips of information, as you put it, we didn't know the exact extent of, of the evidence that they have. And that might be one of the reasons why they're holding back evidence. In other words, maybe by exposing the details of this murder, maybe they will also be exposing the fact that you know Turkish intelligence was actually following Saudi intelligence, Saudi operatives, and they actually didn't intervene where they should have. Legally, they are under international legal responsibility of preventing a crime like this. I think this is a very important question. The second aspect is, and they're not mutually exclusive, of course, it might be a, a bargaining where the Turkish government doesn't really want to expose all of its cards at the same time. So they basically try to hold the cards closer to their chest so that the Saudis can't really guess what the Turkish administration knows about this. So that also might give a leverage to Erdogan administration in these negotiations. When we look at the pro-Erdogan Turkish press, and especially I'm going to mention Ibrahim Karagül from Yeni Shafak, who is uh, has been for some time now the sort of ideological mastermind of Erdogan's geopolitics. We see that the pro-RKP press in general is accusing Mohammed bin Salman openly. So this is another tactic by Erdogan that we saw also in his domestic struggles with rivals that he basically, he won't mention by name, but then his publicists would do the work for him. So if the Saudi government cannot blame the Turkish government openly, For this kind of negative publicity, since the Adrian administration is just going to say, well, we have a free press, everybody can say what they want. And this is basically, I mean, they're not going to be doing this kind of propaganda, but. It's going to be a private source. It's not going to be government propaganda, but it's going to be a newspaper that is controlled by the government that's doing the propaganda. So that's also, an, I think, an important aspect of you know, Erdogan's propaganda uh, operations in general. So when we look at this propaganda, what do we see? First of all, they start with Mohammed bin Zayed, which is the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates. They are pinpointing at MBZ, if we call them like that, as the sort of mastermind and mentor of MBS. In other words, they are, first of all, pointing fingers at the Emirati crown prince as the mastermind of this newly emerging Israeli Saudi Emirati. American alliance against Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood.
3: That's Abu Dhabi's uh, Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan. Yes, also Nahyan. known by acronyms MBZ, as you said.
2: MBZ, yes. So, the, in the Gulf context, basically, we have these three families the Emirati, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, and the Saudi family vying for power. And Erdogan's government basically positioning itself. In the power struggle between these powers, so what they're saying about MBZ is that he is trying, together with that MBZ is trying to start a war, like Iran-Iraq war in the Gulf. They call it the Great Gulf War or a preparation for the Great Gulf War. This is, um, I think, very serious stuff because you know the basically you know Erdogan's publicists are perceiving this as a preparation of a greater war. So if you look at uh, the domestic discourse rather than the international, the domestic discourse is pretty aggressive, pretty militaristic, and giving the impression that they are considering a potential fight with the Saudis. And the second thing is, and this is interesting, they're also warning and this propaganda, this is from Ibrahim Karagur. He's also warning that Iran always was the winning part of these regional power struggles. In Lebanon, they won with a rising Hezbollah. In Syria, they won with uh, supporting Assad. In Iraq, they won supporting uh, Ibadi in the Dawah Party. So, whenever the Sunnis and the Shias fight over regional influence, Iran always wins. So this is very interesting because they're not necessarily pro-Iranian, but the audience is basically still the Sunnis, because the propaganda suggests that the Saudis and their power claims in the region actually made Iran a more powerful actor. In other words, if you want to contain Iran, then you should get all the Sunnis together and not divide them.
3: They consider themselves as realists, if you like.
2: You know, there's more to that. This is evidence for the claim that Turkey is uh, competing with Saudis over the leadership of the Sunni insurgents in the Middle East. Because the claim is not that maybe would be expected, for example, in the 1990s from the same Islamist movement when they were more under Iranian influence with the revolution, they would be much more emphasized The peace and reconciliation between the Sunni and the Shia, as opposed to just sort of emphasizing how Iran is the winner of all this power struggle. So I think this is uh, that that nuance is very important, that they're not just criticizing the uh, Saudis with dividing the Sunnah, the Islamic community of believers. They're fanning, you know, sectarianism and so on and so forth. But more specifically, they are accusing the Saudi government of or with failing the Sunnis in the region and making Iranians more and more powerful. Secondly, very importantly, they point out, and I think this is another important sort of red flag with this propaganda, they are equating MBS, MBZ with Fetullah Gülen, the cleric that had to leave Turkey back in 1997 after a military coup. And despite Erdogan's invitations, never returned to Turkey, but became very influential within the Turkish state due to his alliance with Erdogan until Erdogan decided that he needed to eliminate them from the power-sharing agreement in 2013. So this is also interesting because Erdogan is accusing Fethullah Gulen of uh, spying for for the U.S. and for Israel, has blamed him for the coup attempt in 2015, has purged many of, of Gulen's followers from the bureaucracy, closed down Gulenist associations, closed down Gulenist schools, hospitals seized all their property, also prosecuted many of the leading members of the Gulen community. So by equating Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed with Fetullah Gulen, they're basically arguing that Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed are conspirators serving Western interests so that these countries, the Emirates and the Saudi Kingdom, would be serving Western interests the accusation of serving western interests is very widespread in the middle east as you would know everybody would accuse each other of you know serving you know colonial and imperialist interests but what is more striking in this is that since the gulen movement has been defined as a domestic terrorist threat next to the pkk the kurdish liberation movement by equating salman and zaid the two muhammads also With the Gulen movement, it tells you that now Saudis and Emiratis are perceived as number one security threats.
3: And in fact, Mr. Erdogan recently called Emiratis miserable people, didn't he? Yes, he did. Emiratis are suspected by the Turkish government of supporting the 2016 failed coup in the country.
2: Exactly. They said this out loud. They accused them out loud. And also, so let's situate Khashoggi in this context to understand uh, where he was at with regard to these issues that we just enumerated. So he was critical of Trump's Syria policy. He was critical of Trump's rapprochement with Bashar Assad. He was critical of Saudi policy with regard to Qatar, Saudi warfare in Yemen, critical of Saudi support organizing of the military coup in Egypt in 2013. However, he was supportive of Mohammed bin Salman's 2030 vision. So in terms of reforming the Saudi economy, liberalizing it, opening it to international markets. Hashikchi was supportive of those. But apart from those, he opposed all the other foreign policy initiatives. And it is in this sense that he was very much aligned with the Turkish government's official line. So, you know, we can see how the Turkish administration is hoping that they can still align themselves with a Saudi faction Within the state, which is not vocal, which is not open, but which is secretly opposing Mohammed bin Salman, hmm. and I think this is a you know all the you know Erdogan's discourse is pointing to that direction. This is why they're accusing Mohammed bin Salman. This is where they're why they're accusing Mohammed bin Zayed, so that they could actually topple them down and install an alternative crown prince. Maybe go back to Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the previous crown prince until Mohammed bin Salman was appointed as crown prince, which actually runs against, you know, the Saudi traditions of succession as far as I, I am concerned.
3: So the idea is essentially to either push MBS out of power or to contain him somehow.
2: Yeah, And of course, you know, um, all of this was even more complicated when Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won two years ago, because we knew from her stance that Hillary Clinton was very hawkish on Syria, was not going to reconcile herself with Bashar al-Assad. She would have potentially escalated American military intervention in Syria which might have satisfied Erdogan as well as, you know, people like Khashoggi, maybe Saudi faction, which was, again, against uh, reconciling with Bashir al-Assad. So this all goes basically to this issue, again, of, of division uh, within Islamism. In other words, between sort of a more Republican Islamism or electoral Islamism or constitutional Islamism that is represented by the Muslim Brotherhood vis-a-vis the Saudi Islamism that is trying to keep those issues at bay, uh, issues of representation and constitutionalism, in order to preserve the absolutist regime in the Arabian Peninsula. The problem, of course, from Erdogan's perspective, is that although he promotes this image of liberal Islam, he doesn't really have any kind of moral high ground any kind of moral legitimacy vis-a-vis the Saudi government since he became a uh, authoritarian figure himself, especially the perception in Western media, in Western policy circles, in the international public opinion. So they're not as scandalous as uh, Mohammed bin Salman, maybe, but still, I don't think, you know, his claims of moral superiority over the Saudi regime don't really have much traction. They're not very credible. And an interesting, you know, side note is how, you know, when you look at this newly emerging alliance, the Saudi Emirati-American sort of an Israeli alliance, is that this is actually, if you look at it, all the, all the major main architects of this alliance are crown princes. Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zaid, Jared Kushner, right? I mean, these are all. Uh, <laughs> so
3: Kushner is another crown prince, huh?
2: <laughs> I yeah, definitely, definitely, I think so.
3: <laughs> In Trumpian universe, I suppose that's uh, uh,
2: definitely one important measure for me is the definition and distribution of ministerial portfolios. So, what is Jared Kushner's portfolio actually?
3: Sure. That's a fair question. Right. So
2: in what capacity does he go and close deals with the Saudi crown prince or the Israeli prime minister engages in shuttle diplomacy without the participation of the State Department? We know in you know, some of these negotiations that the State Department wasn't even invited. This is a good measure that this is basically I mean, the only reason Why Jared Kushner is in charge of Middle Eastern regional policy rather than the State Department Planning Department, right, which is expected to have the last say in this, or the National Security Council just acts on his own with the powers, with a portfolio that nobody really knows what it entails what is he negotiating you know what are the the stakes in these negotiations and bargains we don't really know he's no middle eastern expert he's not really an expert in diplomacy so this is i think another important question over the board not just the middle eastern monarchies but over the board if you look at it all the states even established western states like the u.s When it comes to Middle Eastern policies and foreign policy, they just appear to be preferring this undiplomatic, unofficial, underground, non-transparent bargaining and negotiation process. This is a major threat to democracy because this is a lack of transparency, lack of democratic responsibility. So it is, I think, a problem for all of us, not just Middle Easterners.
3: Sure, there is a lack of accountability, certainly. Yes. Um, Saudis and Emiratis have invested billions of dollars in Turkey. They have massive capital Mm -hmm. in uh, Turkey. Given the dubious state of Turkish economy, Mr. Erdogan has been wary of provoking them and has generally tried to play down their differences. Even though uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, allegedly had referred to Turkey as part of a regional quote-unquote triangle of evil in the past. He's He's taking
2: this discourse directly from Bush, right? Axis of evil.
3: Mr. Erdogan seems to be walking a fine line, is he not?
2: So let's start with the axis of evil, right? So Mohammed bin Salman is taking this discourse directly, immediately from Bush. I think very consciously so in order to be able to speak to conservative voters in America. So in other words a more fine-grained analysis would suggest that the alliance is between social conservative voters in the US, the Netanyahu faction, extreme right in Israel and the newly emerging Saudi regime in Saudi Arabia. So in this sense I mean they're not talking to go- from government to government they're also talking to domestic as well as international audiences. That's another important aspect uh, I think we should consider. In that context, if you look at it, they all have to walk a fine line. Start with Netanyahu. Netanyahu, his wife is being indicted in court. At one point, a few years ago, he seemed to be on the verge of losing control over his party, over his coalition and potentially go to jail now he feels stronger more powerful but he again hangs by this very sort of thin thread to power same goes for Mohammed bin salma he seems very powerful he seems very able however we should keep in mind that he came to power through a coup practically so this is also this also suggests to us that the regime is not consolidated yet It's still a regime in transition. And also factoring in the fact that all of his major initiatives failed. So Mohammed Salman tried to beat the Houthis in Yemen. Failure, major failure and major problems because of all the war crimes that the Saudis committed in the war against Yemenis. Use of chemical weapons, bombing of civilians.
3: Cluster bombs, Uh, yes.
2: We can add more to the list. So I think that's also a very thin line. He tried to intervene in Lebanon to leverage Saudi influence in Lebanon against Iran by arresting the Lebanese prime minister in Saudi Arabia and keeping him under arrest, which again backfired big time. Not only could we achieve his political objectives, but he was hurt in a big way. Then comes this next scandal with Kashikchi. This is, I think, a scandal of major proportions. It's not peculiar to Saudi foreign policy. We've seen it from Iranians before, right after the revolution, right? The execution of regime opponents in Europe, members of the, the people's Mujahideen, you know, the Communist Party
3: and leftist, leftist opposition yes. to the regime.
2: And just recently, we know how Russia eliminated opposition figures abroad and then and, and domestically. So Saudis are not, in the sense, an exception to this kind of policy. But what is so scandalizing is the absolute bluntness of all of this. They were pretty sloppy about the PR around this murder control public opinion, but also, and more importantly, this is a total transgression of diplomatic immunity and international law at the very basic level. In other words, diplomatic immunity doesn't give anybody to commit murder in another country. So this is, I think, a very important event because remember why Iranians got so isolated internationally. Uh, because of the transgression of, again, diplomatic immunity during the occupation of the embassy in Tehran. This is the reason why the Western policy circles started talking about the so-called you know rogue states because they don't really abide by any international diplomatic standards that was supposed to be uh, the discourse the operating logic behind the rogue states discourse
3: in the mid 1990s actually the Europeans they severed their ties to Iran after these assassins were convicted in a court in Germany Exactly they were held responsible for assassinating Kurdish leaders in a cafe exactly. in Berlin Exactly uh,
2: so... so states do assassinate opposition figures. We can find evidence for this in the history of all, you know, states' diplomatic affairs. But but the major point is to use diplomatic immunity as a shield for these assassinations. Despite the fact that this is not an exception, I think it's a very telling and important aspect. Because if the West doesn't respond to this even at a dip, as, as a symbolic level that means that all states will eventually engage in this kind of you know extrajudicial killings it is in this sense that i think you know we need to talk about this sort of potential great gulf war as being a very unstable process not only undermining the regional peace between states, but also undermining domestic uh, regimes and undermining diplomatic custom in the Middle East.
0: That's Professor Sinan Birdal speaking with Shahram Agamir. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
3: Let's shift to the domestic front in Turkey. Are there any considerations on the domestic front for Mr. Erdogan that may have influenced his strategy or may influence future decisions by the Turkish government regarding the case of Mr. Khashoggi's murder or any disagreements within the ruling Justice and Development Party Act party on how these matters should be handled?
2: There might be, but they're not vocal. So it could be either a Saudi faction, In other words, not in the higher echelons of state bureaucracy, not in the party elites, but maybe in his base, basically the Salafis and the Wahhabis. So we don't really, I mean, it's really early to tell, and there's really not much of research right now. Since academics in Turkey right now are under increasing pressure, we don't know what impact This fallout with the Saudis had on Turkish Islamists, because at the end of the day, AKP is only one of the many sort of strands within political Islam in Turkey. But Islamists up until now decided to work with Erdogan or rally under Erdogan's banner against the secularists. But if it comes to a division between the Saudis and the Qataris and Salafi, Wahhabi kind of Islamism versus Muslim Brotherhood, then this gets problematic. This might get potentially problematic. Up until now, even, even though you had these sort of fringe Islamist groups like, for example, ISIS or you know Salafi, Wahhabi factions, which considered Erdogan not an Islamist, not even a proper Muslim, but they considered him the worst possible option for Islamists. But they are rather weak, I would say, up until now. So we don't see any kind of major opposition within the ruling bloc.
3: So it would be fair to say that support for Muslim Brotherhood would be the dominant tendency within the AKP, Justice and Development Party in Turkey.
2: Yes, yes, I think so. If they, letting that go, letting the Muslim Brotherhood go, will change AKP and the ruling bloc fundamentally, ideologically, organizationally, in terms of geopolitical alignments. uh, This is, I think, a constitutive element of the ruling bloc right now.
3: And it's more geopolitical. And political, if you like, as opposed to ideological, isn't it?
2: Yes. This is a very interesting topic, actually, because now in the 60s and 70s, of course, Turkish Islamists were very much influenced by Egyptian Islamists and by Pakistani Islamists. But after the Iranian Revolution, a new and more successful Islamist model appeared, a revolutionary model for the 80s and 90s. The Turkish Islamists were influenced by both of these traditions, a Shia Islamism, a Shia insurgency, if you will, and a Sunni insurgency. And throughout the 80s, all the way, I think, uh, down to the mid 90s, actually down to the coup in 1997, Turkish Islamists were very much, although they are Sunnis, they were very much influenced by the Iranian Islamists. The coup in 1997 against Erdogan's mentor, Erbakan, and his welfare party was at the same time a coup against the geopolitical alignments of Islamists, especially Iran and Libya that they were trying to sort of put together as a alliance. This has changed drastically. After the mid-90s, coming to 2000s, Iran became a liability for the AKP government in the West. So in order to get Western support, he had to reconfigure the political strategy as well as the ideological makeup of Turkish Islamism. So politically, they still needed Iran. They didn't want to isolate Iran. But... Ideologically, they were distancing themselves and trying to play the role that was initially designed for the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East, which is liberal Islam. Throughout the 80s and the 90s, the West thought of Turkey as a secular state in the Middle East. After the mid-90s, they started toying with the idea of creating a more civil, more liberal type of Islam that would also run against Iranian Islamism. So in this sense, we still don't know the exact trajectory that this movement is going to take sure. in the future. Sure. But we can say several things that I think both the Iranian kind of Islamism and Salafi Islamism are dead ends. So, And they're not really fighting the forces that they are claiming to fight which was like Zionism, Western imperialism, and this and that, they're more interested in fighting with each other. In that sense, there is, I think, an ideological crisis within Islamism, and this is all over the region. Mm. So in that sense, I believe that the, the AKP government will be able to walk that fine line ideologically. I would be more concerned whether they can actually walk that line politically. In other words, they need Iran, they need Russia, but they also need Americans in order to, to contain Kurds. And should they side with Americans or should they side with, you know, they are usually, you know, they're allied with Americans, but Americans are supporting Kurds. So against the Kurds, They need um, the support of Iran. They can't get support of Saudis because the Saudis are supportive of the U.S. They can't get support from Israelis, not because of ideological reasons, but because Israelis are also supportive of the Kurds. They would like to support the Kurds in Iraq. That's also impossible because the situation that the Barzani faction is in right now is not that rosy. So uh, by opposing the Kurdistani referendum for independence, they also went into loggerheads with the Barzani faction. So what I'm trying to say is that the choices of allies in the region is not the ideal choices reflecting ideological preferences, but they are shaped by the feasibility of alliances. Sure.
3: There is Mm -hmm. little doubt that Turkey needs United States. Yes. In extracting concessions from the Saudis. But Turkish-United States ties have been strained since the attempted coup in 2016. And they seem to have deteriorated further during Trump Mm -hmm. administration. What have been the bones of contention, if you can summarize that for us? First
2: and foremost, the Kurdish issue. One important news that just broke out was that the Deputy State Secretary visiting Ankara stated that the U.S. government is going to put a monetary award on the heads of three most senior PKK leaders, other words, leaders of the Kurdish liberation movement. This is a major concession to Turkey. However, it's, it's a symbolic concession.
3: This just happened on November
2: 6th. Yes. Yeah. And the Turkish presidential press secretary immediately came out, Ibrahim Kalın, and stated that these ostentatious shows of, of solidarity with the Turkish government is just a sort of PR that if the US wants closer cooperation with Turkey, they need to wipe out the Kurdish fighters in Syria. So their focus is, as they call it, the region east of Euphrates. That means the Kobani and the Kamishlo cantons of Rojava. And the most western canton of Afrin is already occupied by Turkish forces and its allies. So they are also trying to occupy the remaining two provinces in the cantons in the east. So I think this is the most important, the most fundamental demand on part of Turkish government. Uh, This is also the main rationale, the building block of the ruling coalition right now. So the coalition that is bringing together racist nationalists, Kemalist nationalists, ex-Maoists, third world nationalists, and Islamists, all together is this sort of anti-Kurdish interest. So this is an important point that brings together all the stakeholders of Erdogan's ruling coalition. So this is the most important sort of state interest, quote unquote. But apart from that, we know that there are also other issues concerning not necessarily the Turkish state as a corporate personality or not the other parts of the ruling coalition. These are issues concerning Erdogan's regimes and Erdogan's person and Erdogan's family. First and foremost, uh, Fethullah Gulen, the demand for the extradition of Gulen and his community out of the U.S., uh, turning them back to Turkey to be put on trial because of coup attempts, because of spying, because of conspiring with the West. You know, these are the allegations out there. Hmm. Then there is the issue of Halkbank, the People's Bank, which is a public bank and a very important bank that operates abroad in the Balkans and in the Middle East, especially in Iraqi Kurdistan, as well as all over in the Balkans, you know, in Bosnia, Macedonia, for example. This bank was associated with the circumvention of the UN embargo against Iran. So this is a major accusation, and actually the deputy uh, director of the bank is standing trial in Manhattan.
3: The U.S. prosecutors have said that Mr. Attila, this banking Mm -hmm. manager, was involved in a scheme to help Iran spend oil and gas revenues abroad using fraudulent gold and food transactions through Haldane. Yes. Uh, didn't receive a 32-month sentence in prison for conspiring to violate U.S. sanctions back uh, in uh, May?
2: Yeah, but also uh, an important witness of this trial was a, a person who was closely associated with Erdogan and his family.
3: And this fellow Reza Zarab, who was acting on behalf of the Iranian regime. Yes, he's an Iranian,
2: Iranian Azeri. That's Reza zarab yes. And many of the Erdogan ministers. And he is still in American hands. So we don't know what other type of information he has. We don't know the exact extent of allegations. We don't have access to testimonies of witnesses and so on and so forth. But we know that Halkbank was also very instrumental in depositing Iraqi Kurdish oil from Iraq. So since the Kurdish regional administration under Mesut Barzani could not use Iraqi banks to put this oil money in he was using the turkish banking system to to be able to put that cash into use into the financial system and this was a lucrative business for both the turkish administration and the barzani faction some reports suggest that that oil from the kurdistan region might have included also some ISIS oil, that is adding another important complication to the operations of this public. And by the way, this public bank is one of the biggest banks in Turkey, and they are underwriting several, several construction projects in Turkey. So if they get into trouble with uh, the international financial system, that will be a big blow for the Turkish economy, not to mention you know Turkey's reputation abroad. This is another important factor. And of course, most importantly, Erdogan is seeking recognition for his regime from both the U.S. and the EU.
3: And Mr. Erdogan has clearly uh, condemned uh, the trial of Mehmet Hakon Attila, uh, this banker, that you mentioned, in he was put on trial in New York. He has condemned the trial and calling it, basically has condemned it as a political attack on his government.
2: We see that, I mean, over the last three years, we see Erdogan always yearning for recognition and acknowledgement of his regime from the West. And the West was reluctant to give it officially, but gave it practically. For example, they would always criticize Erdogan's bid for the presidentialist regime, but they would still go and talk to him in his palace or something. So these kind of symbolic gestures were very important for the diplomatic recognition of Erdogan's government, but he still has a lot of problems with getting recognition abroad. But he knows the only way to gain diplomatic recognition is to be strong and powerful and be able to control processes on the ground. As long as you're a military force, a political force to be reckoned with, he's thinking he needs to be recognized. He will be recognized no matter what he does. And I think he is confirmed in this belief. I think the way you looked at the West is treating Mohammed bin Salman or has been treating Erdogan so far. The way that he has been treated, I think, shows us that you can get away with this, if you're powerful enough.
3: On the same day, Turkey and seven other countries were granted temporary waiver from the U.S. sanctions against Iran's energy sector. Yes. This was a crucial waiver for Turkey, which imports about half of its oil and a fifth of its gas needs from Iran. Yes. Natural gas needs, that is. On the same day, actually on Sunday, November 4th, both countries announced that they had lifted sanctions against their top officials, right? And as you mentioned earlier, two days later, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Matthew Palmer, announced that U.S. Department of State was going to authorize up to $12 million of rewards in exchange for information on these three senior members of the PKK. Is this coincidental, the timing of these announcements, or are they part of a grand bargain that would involve the U.S., Turkey, and Saudi Arabia?
2: Let me just first say that this is not the first time that Turkey and other countries are being exempted from oil trade with Iraq for a very good reason that these countries need that oil and the economic impact of uh, the lack of Iranian oil would be so substantial that these countries would have to oppose or circumvent this embargo. We also know that not only the Middle Eastern neighbors, but also European allies of the US are opposing this shift from Obama's rapprochement with Iran to uh, Trump's sort of hawkish aggression against Iran. In that sense, It's not for the first time that we see this kind of exception. I think it was pretty uh, expected. But the other issue about criminalizing PKK leaders even further than they are is, I think, a concession on Trump's behalf. But this is now actually um, the second time we see this between Trump and Erdogan. Basically, Trump coming out with some concession, like it happened in the Bronson case, the uh, the pastor that was kept under arrest in Turkey for being a Gulenist, which uh, many thought was a bargaining chip for Erdogan in return for all these issues like Halkbank, Kurdish problem. But I think that the Kurdish issue is the main issue here. Uh, The problem is that the Trump administration did not let go of Obama's backing for the Kurds in Syria. The reason for that is I think there is a larger consensus with the Pentagon, with the State Department, and especially with the Israeli lobby for the Kurds. And the Saudis also came on board. So under these circumstances, it's really hard for the US to just ditch the Kurds in Syria. And that's a major problem for Turkey. This is the major goal of this ruling coalition. If they cannot do that, there will be no political rationale holding this coalition together and it will fall apart unless they find another rationale for its existence. This is a major regime issue for for Erdogan. And from American perspective, Again, it's a regime issue in the sense that, you know, you can always say, well, Erdogan is in power today, but, you know, he won't be maybe in power tomorrow, so we don't have to negotiate with Turkey for Erdogan or for Erdogan's political coalition. So all these things about Halkbank, Gulen... They might just as easily say, you know what, this is not about Turkish interests. This is about Erdogan's interests or Erdogan's regime interests. So some of the issues are go much deeper. They concern more than just the leader of the ruling coalitions, but larger sections, especially of the state bureaucracy and other stakeholders.
0: Sinan Birdal is a visiting professor of International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Southern California. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.